Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KP. And I'm AP Andy. And we are here with a very, very special guest today. His name is Neeral Shah. He is the first guest to ever come back for a third time on the Antifada. So I hope you feel very special. I feel, I feel like the happiest boy. I think in past episodes we introduced you as the editor of Blunderbuss, but it, is Blunderbuss gone now? It is. It is now defunct. Oh. Um, Much like the Blunderbuss itself. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. It seems uh, just the the the, pre- the immense time pressure of being our attorney was too much for you to edit a magazine. Please, please do not put that burden on me. Uh, If nothing else, it undercuts my own ability to libel people on this episode. Fair enough. (laughs) Well, it's actually very much connected to another thing uh, that's in the news and happened, which is um, friend of the show, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, took a slot with the Bernie Sanders campaign. She is the national press spokesperson for Bernie Sanders. So we're very glad and very happy that uh, when Brie agreed to come on the show, but based on time constraints, she didn't know when she could do it, that uh, she never came on because nothing would taint a candidate or a person more than an appearance. Oh, yeah, we would be on Fox News for sure. <laughs> uh, I'll just say I, I'm, I'm very happy for her, but I'm very sad to be missing out on the analysis she would have been writing otherwise. I tell you this, she was going to come on to talk with a lot with Andy about uh, Star Trek and socialism and oh, communism. Yeah. And uh, so we neither, need to either hope that Bernie loses or that uh, he wins, but she doesn't get a part of his administration so she can come back again, not be canceled. Or that we get a replicator and can make another <laughs> Brianna and uh, you know have one of, one of her just write the content she would have otherwise. That would be great. You know... A lot of our problems would be solved with replicators, I tell you. I, that's that's what I'm saying. And she is not the spokesperson, babe. She is the press secretary. I'm sorry. So get it right. It's a very important job. Um, I, I'm actually a little bit sad that we don't get the free promo that we would have gotten if, um, if she had come on our show and then InfoWars got a hold of it. But it's, it's probably for the best. Well, you know, the, the antifada mindset is, is it's almost like a disease. It's like the toxoplasmosis of, uh, you know, shows. It gets into your brain. It spreads from person to through person. Feces. Yes, through, through feces. feces. Indeed, yeah. Yes, 100% through feces. And sometimes through the internet. So <laughs> don't get too comfortable, folks. You're, you're drawing a distinction without a difference. <laughs> I was going to say Fair. herpes, but to, you know, toxoplasmosis, I think, uh, makes a lot of sense. Let's not stigmatize the herpetic. <laughs> That's true. So... Shout out to Brianna Joy Gray. Um, you're still welcome to come on our show uh, if and when you no longer work for Bernie Sanders. I think it'll be really fun. We can talk about Star Trek or whatever. But as of now, we, you, we're uninviting you for, of, yeah, don't. for your own good for the, and, <laughs> and for the, the good, good of, of this Bernie nation. <laughs> and, and you know what? That's just how nice we are. Yeah, we don't we're even, nice. We don't even like democrats all yeah, right we're nice we don't even like bourgeois democracy we hate democracy but we well, understand I, I don't know if you've heard jamie but um on the internet some people are saying bernie isn't even a democrat oh, oh right 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 i'm true. sorry my bad speaking of uh he isn't even a democrat and libs um i have to say there were some cancellations this week um we're gonna go through them one by one but i don't see how a woman by the name of Rachel Maddow on MSNBC is going to continue 
with her Russian crusade now that the Mueller report has essentially canceled her entire content for her show. What do you think, babe? Yeah, I don't know where she could possibly go from here. All this Russia, uh, Russia. To the Southern District of New York, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm, so, so the. Okay, fair. For the con- See, Andy's a better lib than all of us. <laughs> <laughs> over and over again. I read David Cleon's feed. That's a good place to get your news. Friend yeah, the uh, the, uh, the Mueller report we just saw on this Sunday uh, that uh, it does not recommend indictment. It said there was no collusion. No collusion. No collusion, folks. Witch hunt, Donald folks. Donald Trump innocent. It was, it was merely just a coterie of uh, vile, incompetent people surrounding him, which I, I'm shocked by. We, uh, we had no way to know that prior to this. <laughs> let's 37 like, indictments, you know. Let's also add venal to that as well because there was just corrupt across the board but nothing that they can actually track to Trump through the Mueller report but as Andy says it is true that it will go to the Southern District and they could potentially bring charges in the future but this giant Mueller report which was basically like the the apocalypse the scale falling from the eyes of liberal and conservative America was a big fat dud so oh well sorry Rachel canceled let's see who else is canceled Um, Barbara Streisand Seems moderately canceled. Yeah, what'd she do? Over her comments on uh, the kids that Michael Jackson molested. She's also uninvited from the show. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) She was going to come on to do one of our famous karaoke renditions. (laughs) The uh, the first thing I was told the first time I came on this show is that there's a a, a staunch anti-molester party line here. And, you know, it would be hypocritical if you'd allow Babs on. We're not those kinds of libertarians, okay? Well, we are going to be talking about Brexit, which uh, is happening in Britain. So there is that pedo connection right there already. Sorry to our British listeners out there. Your ruling class Aww. is disgusting and perverted. It's true. But uh, eaten is what makes you a man. <laughs> uh, Barbara Streisand under fire for comments she made about two men accusing Michael Jackson of sexually assaulting them as children. Has everybody here watched the Leaving we Neverland? It. Yeah. I mean, really, it's. Uh, really brutal it was brutal it was it was tough it fucked me up uh she said that the kids were quote thrilled to be there and that what allegedly happened to them quote didn't kill them and uh that wow yeah that's still not as bad as the people who still insist somehow against all evidence that michael jackson is innocent though well we we live in an age of um conspiratorialism and consumer choice driving the 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 news that people uh, choose to imbibe and it it we'll get to this with brexit a bit i'm sure but um you know people believe uh fake news fake news folks like the Mueller mm-hmm, report apparently mm-hmm. you're saying michael jackson is innocent i'm oh the conspiratorialists who say this is an attempt to get uh you know a black man ruin a treasured cultural figure oh it's, but streisand isn't even saying that oh you're no, saying no, no. <laughs> i know i'm saying that they're like a level worse than her yeah. like oh, okay. even she admits that this happened well let's let's get her direct quote there's the whole quote quote from babs his sexual needs meaning michael jackson's were his sexual needs coming from whatever childhood he has or whatever dna he has you could say molested. Wait, what? Yes, this is the actual quote. You can say, what? scare quote, molested, but those children, as you heard them say, they were thrilled to be there. They both married and they both had children, so it didn't kill them. It's a very born this way slash maybe Joe Jackson did it. Uh, it's the same argument Gigi Allen made when he was defending his songs about rape on Maury Povich. 
Wow. Wow. Really? Yeah. Damn. You know, like I, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I, I think there actually is an open question whether it's more morally repugnant to be a doubled down conspiracist about it not ever happening versus a molester apologist. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think that's our topic for the day, so we'll have to leave it for another time. Uh, I mean, open question. Yeah. <laughs> We're just talk, asking questions. Talk about Streisand effect, right? Uh, she's having a whole different sort of effect on the culture right now she did apologize she backtracked there welcome but, to you know. the lower right hand corner of the political compass barbara streisand <laughs> i believe you'll find some very nice comrades there who are who are welcoming you with open arms really and they'd love to discuss the finer points of uh, pedophilia versus ephebophilia etc <laughs> and the age of consent laws across the country oh so, barbara streisand and the non-aggression principle we're here you for You heard it. it here first, <laughs> folks. So speaking of uh, being canceled, um, <laughs> we have a little bit of, I mean, it's it's sad. It's legitimately sad, right, that the uh, ISO is kind of uh, blowing up before our eyes. Do you uh, have anything to say on that, Fabe? Oh, um, I've never been a member of the International Socialist Organization, which is part of the International Socialist Tendency, so tied also with the Socialist Workers' Party in Britain. Um, I've had run-ins, encounters with them over the years, I will say. Uh, in some organizing uh, capacity, they have blocked what I thought would have been good tactical and strategic things to do in the past, uh, but that said... Um, I have a lot of really smart and really genuine and good socialist friends who are members or were members of the ISO. Yeah, shout so, out to Aaron, friend of the show. Friend of the show. I have no joy, um, you know, in announcing that the uh, ISO is broken up over a sex scandal, not merely because uh, any time something like that happens, it's horrific for the survivors and obviously... Uh, says a lot about um, our society and patriarchy in general, but also because, you know, I can disagree with the ISO and I could disagree with Trotskyists on certain things, but they were one of the larger and more uh, organized and I guess um, they spanned time. They spanned time. Um, what, since the 60s, was it, Andy? Something like that. Andy, doesn't, like Andy that. doesn't care about the ISO. They, they threw a, a very good conference once a year. The ISO aren't weird to. enough for me. They aren't weird yeah. enough. And they don't believe in anything weird. That's the only thing I like about Trotskyism. So like mm, the Spartacus with their weird. with their uh, with their pedophilia yeah. is interesting. Or the IMT with being like not believing in the Big Bang theory. <laughs> or like, obviously the Posadists <laughs> yeah. with their views on dolphins and aliens. Yeah, the ISO cool. tried to be normie, and that's where I check out. <laughs> Do better, ISO. Oh, you Do orthodox, orthodox Trotskyists. Yeah, real quick, we're not going to bang on about this. Again, no joy in them uh, blowing up, but they did have a Me Too-type scandal inside of their organization within their leadership. There was apparently, allegedly, a sexual assault that was perpetrated on one of the members by uh, their leadership. Um, I don't think we can say that... Um, Democratic centralism uh, is to blame for this, or certainly that Trotskyism is to blame for this. But I think it does show that on the left, within our groups, our organizations, our networks, our structures, we are prone to the same sort of patriarchal uh, you know, and hierarchical issues that exist through the rest of society. And uh, it's a shame to see the organization fall apart, but clearly the left needs to do much better work on making sure that everybody's safe and uh, that people are held accountable when they do bad things. And yeah. it's, a, it's a good sign, I would say, that the consequences are, are that severe, that we live in a moment where 
you know, this isn't brushed under the rug uh, as readily as it might have been in the past. Yeah, true. But we also need, um, I mean, I think it speaks to the importance of not giving all of the power to a small coterie of unaccountable people and the ways in which abuse can proliferate if structurally uh, a small number of people have too much power and if you don't have some real strong protocols in place already to actively fight against um, the different kinds of oppression that we all come into the space with, it's unavoidable. Yeah, because then one more thing too is that the SWP, which is also part the Socialist Workers Party in Britain, had a very, very similar thing happen to them several years back and uh, it also obliterated their organization. So again, it's not just about Trotskyism, but it is about um, accountability of leadership and uh, just... You know what happens when a group of people are in power for too long and uh, take liberties, I suppose. Yeah. So and hey. anyone, everyone who's been talking shit about the uh, sexism survey that we have been circulating within the DSA to try to figure out how to do better for our membership, you guys can all suck my dick. All right, that's what that that's what's up. Dead ass. So before we get into a uh, little primer on something called a British exit, a Brexit, kind of like Jexodus, but for the British, uh, we would like to announce that uh, not only have we reached our goal of 666 patrons by May 1st, but we have exceeded said goal and we have done so in the month of March. So uh, we would like to give a hearty thanks to everybody who supports our show. It means a lot to us. It uh, allows us to do even cooler and better content. And it also helps to pay our rent, which is very important in New York City. And I sent out a ton of prize packs this week. You should be getting it. If you uh, forgot to put on your address on the Patreon, please do it. And if you're a new subscriber and you missed out uh, on the 666, I will still try to get you a prize pack. I think we should have enough. So just um, put it on Patreon. That's it. Hell yeah. That's, that's quality. You're going above and beyond for our members, Andy. I appreciate that. All right. So we have a topic today that uh, we've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, we really were hoping to get our queen, Ash Sarkar, from Novara Media to come on. But um, she, I guess she's a little bit busy. Um, I'm sure that she will get to us eventually i'm sure that's very important to her but um i think we have enough uh competent uh obsessive followers of the international financial news right here in this room that we can do a decent job without her so um i'm talking of course about the brexit uh the british blexit if you will <laughs> um wherein uh all of the the, the people in britain are uh, walking away, if you will, <laughs> from uh, the uh, tyranny of the European Union. Indeed, and uh, yeah, with the you know with Ash or anybody British here to talk about it, um, I'm just gonna go ahead and yank explain this shit to everybody as a uh, as the House Yankee that's, who follows this shit a lot. That's totally fair. Uh, yeah. So the European Union, um, that is a union, right, where all the workers yeah. in Europe can. Uh, get together yes. and uh, collectively agitate uh, mm. against neoliberalism. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. exactly so, what the Viking so and Laval like, decision what, is. Uh, so that was the like, Lisbon what? Treaty was basically yeah. class, class struggle. Yeah. So then, like, what's the problem? All right, well, here's where we're at, in all seriousness. Um, 
this Brexit thing uh, has a long and storied history, and both Nirol and I have studied it enough that we could give some kind of background to it. But folks should know that um, as of right now, and next week is going to be a wild week in British politics, um, the United Kingdom is on uh, the knife's edge right now when it comes to this referendum they had to leave the EU and how they were going to leave subsequent to that and uh, what were the consequences were going to be. Uh, you had Theresa May, who, was the, who is the, uh, the leader of the Tory party and uh, the government, um, basically failing and flailing about right now as a no-deal Brexit becomes closer and closer despite having uh, just got a couple months extension on uh, this negotiation. But uh, this is very, very topical, and I don't think anybody in this room or outside of this room <laughs> certainly has any idea which way this Brexit is going to break. But it's very important because I think it points a lot uh, points to a lot of the ways in which uh, you know the these ideas of sovereignty uh, and these ideas of um, connection uh, to the political and economic process and the ways in which economic crisis uh, gives rise to things like xenophobia and racism and uh, that then turns political also. I think all these sort of things are wrapped up in this Brexit basket. So uh, with one million people marching yesterday in London for a second rep referendum, um, that uh, it seems like a good idea to just dive in. And uh, thank God I have Nero here. I, uh, I will try to be as useful as I can. I uh, clearly am not British, but as someone who uh, vaguely and distantly could have been a colonial subject, um, <laughs> just counted me for my unbiased uh, and maybe even optimistic view of the British people and their capacity. Can, I, can we stop for one second? And uh, what? So, so have your, your parents are from India, right? Correct. What are their views on the British and uh, colonialism? You know, I, I think actually they don't have um, a lot of the active hatefulness that people of my generation do, people who have kind of steeped themselves in a, in a post-colonial way of viewing the world. I think it's just the reality they were handed and grew up in. And, you know, there are probably some advantages for them in the sense that they were um, raised in uh, learning English at a young age and could flee and come to America. And like a lot of uh, the professional class that came here integrate possibly more easily than, than other Asian immigrants do. Uh, although that's not the entirety of, you know, the South Asian immigrant demographic in America. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's uh, maybe not schadenfreude, but at least a little bit of satisfaction, the irony of, you know, the one thing, the one lasting legacy that the, the colonialists handed you was this brilliant system of government, parliament, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, on the British side is clearly approaching a deep political crisis, uh, and on the Indian side is about to uh, reify a kind of religious fascism. So, well, there we have it. Um, I think it's fascinating. White man's burden. <laughs> Civilizing the whole world, one colony at a time. It's, it's going great. <laughs> the connection is actually really fascinating because so much of um, the the talk around Brexit that you hear in their media, but also when you talk to people on the streets, it's this very backwards looking conception, right? Of uh, Great Britain, um, you know, 
the the sun never setting on it and uh you know the economic and political power it had in the past very much diminishing and people trying to now a couple generations after decolonization try to figure out what it is that great britain is, is supposed to be is a very much a nostalgic sort of sense that when we had india as a colony you know things were good when we had no immigrants or you know no brown or black people things were fine i don't think that there's any way to separate the post-colonial British politics from what we're seeing in Brexit. Well, babe, they're not even talking about Britain as a colonial power. Like, we saw all those interviews that Ash Sarkar did with all of the white British people who voted to leave. Their imagined past is one in which Great Britain is totally self-sufficient for some mysterious reason, and they don't even mention the colonies. They think they're just kind of this, like, isolated uh i don't know it doesn't make a whole lot of yeah sense. no they it is true but um i think that you, like we as people who are looking at this situation need to take a bit of a longer view when we are talking about what the british people quote unquote want what the ruling class wants and what how far great britain has really fell from this imperial height that it had only a hundred years ago one thing that i think is is really fascinating about this is that even to those of us who follow politics closely uh and try to parse through you know, what a trade deal means, you know, if it's the, the Trans-Pacific Pact or whatever it is, is that this is a moment that's really de-abstracting trade, right? There, there are people who are worried about getting pharmaceutical drugs. There are people who are worried about, um, I think Paul Mason mentioned, going to the plant shop and not being able to pick anything up uh, because of the trade borders that are coming up. And it, at the very least, will make this thing that seemed even beyond the realm of elites, this abstracted, running itself global capitals enterprise of how goods get to your country all of a sudden very real and very tangible and i don't think it will lean left or right or neoliberal or open border or one way or another but um it will be felt and and real in a way that it hasn't been in these discussions of trade since the rise of the term globalization in like the 80s and 90s yeah, hundred percent. And when you say that, before we jump into this, because we will right now, uh, it, it reminds me of um, a talking point that you've heard over and over again for the last twenty years, which is Americans going over to Canada to get cheap prescription drugs, which is a like physical, material representation of these issues of different economic and political systems mm -hmm. and different forms of healthcare. Right? There, there is a way that um, these issues are being kind of de-abstracted right now, which is really, really fascinating. So. You know, I am not going to go into, you, you know me, I do history as a weapon. I could talk for two hours. I could probably talk for three hours uh, if I wanted to, uh, but I don't want to because I don't want to bore you. And this is not history as a weapon. But um, we're at this crisis point, as Nero pointed out, uh, in British politics where everything seems fractured where there doesn't seem to be any solution. The question is, how did we get here, right? Why is it that the British people in this referendum voted to get out? And why did they have this referendum to begin with? How the fuck did they even get into the European Union? So for that, uh, in brief, um, you really have to go back to the post-war period uh, after the Second World War. Of course, you have um, all of Europe, including Britain, uh, in rubble. 
right? Their uh, productive capacity was destroyed. A lot of their infrastructure was destroyed. You had a Cold War, right, which lined up Western and Central Europe against Eastern Europe in the Soviet bloc. And you had the United States as the global hegemonic power doing things like the Marshall Aid Program uh, and trade deals and things of that sort, technology transfers to places like Britain. And population transfers, not to to interject uh, or or blow up your narrative, but... um, one one thing that that uh, really shapes the demographic reality of Brit- Britain now is that they lacked laborers and West Indians and Indians uh, came into England in large numbers in the 50s, 60s and 70s to repopulate their labor force and really enable Britain to recover in the way that it did from the war. And that is where you get the Peaceler from. You know what the Peaceler is, right? I do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, when we were on Girls Chat, Jamie and I, that's coming out today, actually. Uh, I thought we were never going to mention they that. Taught us the, they taught us the term F-slur, which is uh, really hilarious. So uh, P-slur, when, I mean, uh, the word packy, right, which gets thrown around a lot, uh, or did, especially in the 60s and 70s, in this time where, for the first time, Britain, folks like Enoch Powell, uh, but all, the entire political class and... Um, you know, the citizens of Great Britain had to deal with for the first time a sizable minority of people coming in to essentially, you know, do the work alongside, quote unquote, real British people, real English people, white English people. Um, so it's a very inclusive slur, by the way, because, you know, <laughs> pa- Pakistan wasn't um, it's an acronym. A lot of people don't know this, but in giving the country a name, it, it, it the, the PAK part stands for Punjab, Afghan and Kashmir. Are you serious? Yeah. Um, there, there's no an alternate idea. theory that it means like um, beautiful or something. But I, I, I think it was Jinnah or, or I'm going to mess up the history of this. But yes, Pakistan, uh, the name of it is PAK, an acronym for the population that made it up. And so it really covers a lot of people to, wow. to call someone a filthy packy. Yeah. Wow. See, you said the peace slur, so I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I see what I was being baited into here. <laughs> I gotcha. You also said it just a minute ago. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, Edit that out and uh, put in uh, Nero's voice instead. Uh, <laughs> so I would never say the peace slur uh, outside of that because I'm not even British. That's not even a slur we have in America. So the, the European Union, again, is this project that's 50 years old, 60 60 years old. Uh, it starts off as um, France and Ger- West Germany, right, as being the dominant capitalist powers within the kind of hegemonic block of American influence, you know, in NATO after the Second World War. It starts off as the um, European uh, Coal and Steel Commission, which was simply a way to lower tariffs and to kind of coordinate the production of very important things like energy and heavy manufacturing. And at this point, Britain was left out because as long as de Gaulle was alive, I think he refused to have Britain be allowed. <laughs> that, that's a callback to uh, History as a Weapon. Check it out. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, total fucking asshole. But uh, <laughs> you have uh, eventually the, this conception of um, Europeanism, right? This, this idea that uh, instead of having you know, these competing states, instead of having customs borders, instead of having to have one passport for a French person, another one for a Luxembourgian or whatever the hell they're called. Another Luxembourgeois. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> or another one for a, a Dutch person, right? The idea of integrating uh, not just the movement of goods and services, but also, of course, people, and not merely integrating them, but also kind of a, a coordinating system, right? So it grows from just, you know, this coal and steel commission to as the 
decades go, uh, becoming more and more a project of true integration, not just economic, but also political, um, especially, of course, um, after the fall of the wall and when uh, Europe uh, itself is back reunited again with, uh, with East and West uh, Germany. Is it accurate to say with the turn towards Euro communism, more like the communist and socialist parties split from the Soviet Union entirely, and they start to see the potential of a European Union as normalizing liberal democracy and opening up chances of like socialist and communist electoral victories on a continental scale? Yeah, well, I think they changed the name to European Union and appropriated the culture of the left and the working class, and that's when they all were tricked into signing onto it, right? Is that right? That's 100% correct, yeah. But I think, you know, you no, raise a good not. point that from <laughs> um, from very early on, our notions of left and right didn't map cleanly onto yes. whether the European project was a good idea or not. And that, I think, is huge for the, for the history of this, because as Andy points out, um, the left wing of the Labour Party, right, because the Labour Party then and now has always had different wings. The Bennite wing in the 1970s under Tony Benn, which was the left wing, you know, was very skeptical of uh, this European project and very much uh, rejected this idea of, uh, you know, international integration into this. Whereas, you know, it was actually the Tory party, the party that put up this referendum that was more kind of proto-neoliberal and certainly in its Thatcherite period uh, very much embraced uh, the move, free movement of capital, the getting rid of price controls, getting rid of these sort of social democratic and Keynesian trappings. So the irony is that the, the Labor Party and the Labor left uh, in the 70s and into the 80s was very, very uh, skeptical of, uh, of, of joining the EU. It's only actually when the Labor Party itself takes the neoliberal turn in 1983 and Neil Kinnock comes to power uh, within the Labor Party by defeating the leftist forces that uh, you start to see elements of labor, large elements of labor, combining with elements of the Tory party in order to, again, continue this integrative process in order to combine, uh, you know, their to, into, into a customs and, union. And a quick backgrounder to our backgrounder, for those who don't know, after the uh, victory of, of Maggie Thatcher, the Labor Party basically broke itself in half between uh, one side that really tried to double down on British socialism, nationalization of industries, uh, things like that, and another side that um, a very young Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were a part of that would come become New Labor eventually. And uh, exactly, and so Neil Kinnock is kind of the pregenitor of uh, Tony Blair's New Labor project, right? And Tony Blair obviously is this very kind of hopey, changey figure in British politics. Uh, new Labor is exactly like the New Democrats in the United States, right? Let's get rid of all this old way of doing things, the welfare state. You know, we're going to give more money to schools and the NHS, but we're pars partially going to privatize the NHS, yada, yada, yada. But the point is that uh, European Union uh, membership was so, um, uh, how should I say, controversial, even at that time that... Uh, Tony Blair wanted to get rid of the pound and Gordon Brown as well. And they wanted to get into the not just the European Union, but the Eurozone, which, of course, would give them the euro as a currency. And even at the height of their power, they could not pass that through. The Brits, the British people and their political class refused to give up the pound. It tells you something about the perceived importance of Britain, which is one of these things people are hankering for and longing for and, and, and want to turn back the clock to. But for, you know, whatever reason... Um Britain got one of the best deals um, 
they didn't have to endure austerity at the hands of a German-led central bank. They did it to themselves for no good reason. Right. <laughs> so is it fair to say that the left or what is passing for the left nowadays, I mean, Corbynism aside, jumped on board with this project when they gave up on the idea or the ambition that they could stand up, I mean, not even to capitalism itself, but even to capital. I think there were some gains to be had through joining the EU. Um, on a human rights front, it did a lot to um, expand access to abortion throughout more Catholic parts of Europe. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's 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 interesting. I think we a lot of even even Lexit, the the sort of left side of, of Brexit, harken back to an idea that opposing European integration was opposing this neoliberal project. And, and this is a, a dialogue from the 80s and 90s, particularly against globalization. I think, you know, for us at our age, our first political consciousness of leftism is anti-globalization. The idea that open borders for capital would mean a, a race to the bottom for, for workers' rights and for environmental protections and things like that. But, you know, one of the things that, that turns over the, the last two decades is that um, it's not an alternative between what your country maybe in its best left expression wants to do and uh, a neoliberal centrism, but um, s your, your opponent is essentially this xenophobic, anti-immigrant right. Um, okay, that's another thing that I wanted to talk about because I feel like, you know, fast forward to the present day and there are really two options that people are being presented with. Um, on the one hand, there is the, especially in Europe, the, the division is, it's, it's a lot more confusing in the U.S., but um, it, it's basically between the populist right and the neoliberal center. And they, uh, on the one hand, um, the right is saying um, we need to stand up against uh, globalization or globalism, as they often call it, which is like the, uh, the right wing anti-Semitic version of that. Um, we sometimes get confused and say it when we don't mean to on the show, but, um, I mean, speaking for myself, I don't ever mean to get too confused. I'm looking over at my German husband right now. He's not saying anything. <laughs> I'm so American. Um, call me German. but yeah, on the one hand, it's like, oh, we have this, uh, xenophobic and racist right that is the only mainstream force that's standing up against the forces of globalization and deindustrialization and outsourcing and taking those things seriously as a crisis. And then on the other hand, we have this uh, neoliberal center that does this neat sleight of hand and says, oh, well, if you oppose neoliberalism and if you oppose this uh, kind of globalization and this enforced austerity, you are necessarily a racist and a xenophobe. Yeah, let's let's get down to what happens why this whole brexit thing happens right so there's this integration we've been talking about there are these forces that jamie is talking about something called the financial crisis of 2000 2000 uh, 2007 2008 happens right which really as we say heightens the contradictions uh all across the world it gives rise to a party that kind of takes these xenophobic ideas and crystallizes them uh, under the United Kingdom Independence Party, which starts to take votes away in many parts of Britain from the Tories uh, and then also from the Labour Party, right? Working class labor, ex-miners. 
um, people who had historically been more socialist inclined. And people who, instead of looking at their local capitalist class or looking to London, uh, it was very easy to create a scapegoat in Brussels, where the head of the European Union and the European Council, European Court of Justice was, and say that it's because these unaccountable bureaucrats you know, are passing all these laws and regulations and letting, forcing us in the Schengen Agreement to let all these migrants into our country to work and keep down wages, that we need to break from this, that Britain, the only way that we can be independent is by leaving this Eurozone. So what happens is everyone's freaked out by UKIP. They're like, is this the new British National Party, new National Front? Uh, we need to do something to stop this. What the Conservative Party does, the Tories who are in power, is they say, all right, basically we're going to bring this kind of UKIP sentiment into uh, the, the, uh, the Conservative Party. We are going to take the farthest right wing, that xenophobic nationalist wing, and we're going to throw them a bone and say, elect us, elect the Tories, and we will allow a referendum on whether we should be in the EU or not. So David Cameron, who's very much of this sort of right neoliberal globalization center right, center right, thank you, uh, you know, part of British politics, uh, bet bet the house that uh, essentially he could just throw up this referendum and that the British people are, would be so cowed by, uh, you know, austerity and crisis and everything that they would never dream to even leave the European Union. But, you know, it's a gamble that that's familiar to Americans, too, which is that when a pro-business right harnesses xenophobic forces to give itself political support, the consequences come outside of um are outside of their reach to contain and go beyond what they actually intend to have happen. I don't know what you could possibly be referring to <laughs> in the United States where that's concerned. So the, um, it's not one thing that people need to understand as far as I understand it as a yank is that, um, this does not neatly match to, uh, like left or right or, or, or uh, Tory, uh, conservative and uh, labor party socialist, right? There are working class people uh, across the country who, um, you know, don't see this as a as a political issue tied to the parties whatsoever. And in fact, there are elements of the capitalist class, right, who are anti-Brexit and pro-Brexit. Mm -hmm. It's kind of scrambled a lot of the politics of the UK. And I think one of the what, what you've seen as um, Article 50, right, which was the consequence of the referendum, which was the process that when Cameron quit, Theresa May was going to go through in order to get the British out of the EU, uh, you saw how chaotic that was because there was no consensus of what was going to happen when you had a yes vote on this and nobody had prepared for it. If you looked at Boris Johnson, who was a monstrous fucking prick, when he's announcing we won, you know, this like leave this giant leave campaign, we finally won it. You look at him up on there, it's on stage and there's terror in his eyes because they wanted this to be a you know protest thing and a way for them to the right wing of the Tories to rise to power. And it didn't work out that way. Now they own Brexit. Like, you know, Trump running a campaign as a joke to give himself prominence and then being terrified by the consequences of actually exactly. winning. Exactly. This I don't think this is just us imposing Americanism onto the scene. I think that it's very resonant, I think, for for everybody here and the listeners out there. The kind of uh, I don't know, the 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 synchronicity between this Brexit protest vote that people did over there and uh, the Trump 
presidential campaign, yeah. which was also a protest. You mean because just like us, as Mueller vindicated, uh, it was all the Russians. <laughs> That's right. Indeed. Yeah, it's almost like the uh, same larger material overdetermining forces are making things happen in multiple parts of the world at once. Yeah. They're all connected. It's almost like it's structural or something like so, that. Well, okay. well, so a question is, um, you know, why did this happen? Why are these political crisis moments happening in Western democracy? Um, you know, we in America look at our situation and think that, um, well, we have, we have procedural defects. We have the, the Electoral College allowing, what, four out of the last six elections to go to the winner of the Electoral College and not the popular vote or whatever it is. Uh, we have the Senate, which over apportions, um, you know, representation to underpopulated white states. And we think that if we had a more malleable, democratic. flexible, democratic system, that the people's will um, wouldn't yeah. put us in these situations. But then you look at Britain, which isn't tied to a constitution in the same way, or at least until relatively recently, you know? Yep. New, yes, again, idiots. <laughs> new, new labor might have been uh, a centrist and pro-globalization force, but they also had a class consciousness that we should be envious of. They disempowered the House of Lords. Yeah. Uh, they created a Supreme Court where Britain never had one. Um, and yet, you know, the parliamentary system without party discipline, without ideological alignment within parties is also basically incapable of handling this. So I just want to make sure that we have caught up to the present day in terms of what's going on. Yeah, before sure. Before we broaden out the discussion to the stuff that is more interesting to all of us, I think. Fuck you, but OK. Uh, I'm sorry. It's uh, I mean, I can only speak for myself here. We got to we got to eat our veggies before we eat our dessert. There you OK, go. how can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat <laughs> or soy meat? Because I do not want people to eat all meat. you all of our UK listeners. We're sorry. Okay, so <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I am too. We're so, sorry about Sweden. Cameron, we know guy, it's a controversial topic there. David Cameron, uh, I don't know a lot about uh, the British news, but he I do know he put his dick in not, a pig's mouth. I well, I wasn't going to mention that, but that is like one thing I know about him. Um, I also know he is Cambridge not, is what makes you a man. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, you just scrambled my brain again. Um, <laughs> I do know he is no longer the prime minister. Yeah. And instead, we yeah. have a really good dancer named <laughs> Theresa May. The Iron so, Lady part two. So, yeah. Yeah, let's, yeah that's, that's so good. So what happens there? He, uh, he concedes to the referendum. Concedes the referendum. Because he wants support from the crazy populist right. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't think that they're going to, they're going to actually succeed in voting for the Brexit. He wants to have it both ways and he thinks he'll end up with more power yeah. at the end of this. Instead, Brexit goes through. Oops. Uh, he ends up with less power than he had before. And then what happens after that? He quits is what happens. Basically, the next day he gets up and he because he's part of the, the uh, Tory party that was uh, trying to push for people to remain. So as a leader, he could not put through Brexit right after people voted for it because he was campaigning along with Corbyn and others in order to stay in the European Union. Historically, up until uh, six months ago in Britain, massively losing a vote would mean the end of your government. It would. And that is what's so interesting about our friend, not comrade, not even friend, Theresa May, who takes over for Corbyn. 
Uh, Theresa May has suffered some of the greatest defeats I think we've ever seen in modern political history. Uh, the greatest in the UK, but potentially even maybe just in the entire world. Like this woman, they call her the Maybot. Like she's some sort of, you know, robot who just speaks, you know, in, in these kind of algorithmic ways. But she is a real masochist. I tell you, she is willing to go out there and lose after lose after lose and take so many losses. What she was trying to do, and this is what brings us up to today, is she was trying to thread the needle between keeping the Boris Johnsons and Jacob Reese Moggs of the world. I almost say Moog like the fucking... Uh, Don't give him exactly. yeah, anything. I, know. I, I apologize to Stereolab for even associating um, that foppish piece of shit with um, the amazing analog synthesizer. But, um, you know, these... The, um, Theresa May is trying to keep these two forces of her party together. She doesn't have the vote. She never did. She made some sort of my, I don't know, mongrel agreement, mongrel agreement with uh, the European Union that kind of keeps half in and half out. There's the Irish backstop. Nobody's happy with it. The first time she votes it, after two years, they finally have a vote on what Brexit's going to look like. It gets voted down on the greatest, the meaningful, first meaningful vote is the greatest uh, loss in parliament in history. She vacillates. She says she's going to get some more assurances to try to make it more amenable to parliamentary, to members of parliament. She comes back and suffers the third greatest uh, disaster uh, in terms of a meaningful vote. Uh, in British history, which brings us to today, where British politics are in crisis. Wait, so does that include the snap election? Oh, yeah, that's snap election. I know about election. the snap election. Yeah, the snap election, too, this folks should know, uh, we kind of jumped past that, but she tried to consolidate her power after that whole Brexit thing happened, and she saw that Jeremy Corbyn had a 19% approval rating, so she's like, I'm going to get all the power, and I'm going to have a snap election, and uh, we're going to take all the seats, so we don't even have to negotiate with labor. And uh, the guy who they call that absolute boy, Jeremy Corbyn, very much overperformed based mm-hmm. on his manifesto. Based on his uh, going out there and offering everybody free stuff free as stuff. much as they wanted, according to uh, the Samantha Bee show. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy and then Corbyn. And then he still lost. He offered everyone free stuff and he lost anyway. And our queen, Theresa May, was left with even <laughs> less of a mandate to execute this Brexit. She was deal. left with a minority government and forced to join with the DUP. Oh, um, the only Northern Irish party to vote against the Good Friday Agreement. They're creationists. They gleefully sing songs about their hatred of Catholics. Mm-hmm. They're they're a real great governing partner. Um, but UKIP also lost in that election. And yeah, the, the current status essentially is that the Conservative Party is barely hanging on to power. And uh, among their own ranks, they're broken over a hard versus a soft Brexit. So that May can't muster enough support for the deal that she's negotiated with the EU and is attempting to use the threat of um, a no-deal Brexit to get people to fall in line. But not only has it failed so far, but now um, out of parliamentarian rules, they're not even allowed to have a vote on the same Mm -hmm. thing again. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, Jeremy Corbyn has been trying to thread this tough needle, too, because a lot of the Labor Party and this, of course, is based on different class forces and geography within the Labor Party itself. But he, as representing the hard left, you know, of this of the uh, Labor Party uh, is trying to keep his coalition together of working class voters who um, have suffered real losses since deindustrialization and since the UK joined the European Union. He's trying to keep them together. And his manifesto was incredibly popular. 
But uh, essentially, as May's trying to run out the clock, uh, the Labor Party is trying to force a general election, which can happen. And Theresa May is trying to uh, get her party together, which can happen because they're too divided. So now we're at the point where either May's deal is going to go up again, perhaps unconstitutionally for a vote, uh, half in, half out Brexit. Or you're going to have something like a Norway-type, Norway-plus agreement, which would essentially stay within the common market, stay within the Schengen zone, but allow Britain to basically do what it wants with industrial policy and things of that sort. And immigration. Can can you explain what some of these terms mean for our listeners who might not know, like the common market, the common currency, Norway was another. Norway was another country that was in a strong bargaining position and was conflicted over whether or not it would join the EU. And to keep it simple so I don't butcher the history, they cut a deal where they're part of the economic union except for certain areas like agriculture, um, fishing maybe, uh, probably a couple other things. But essentially, they have open borders for um, trading goods and um, EU citizens get to travel to Norway like as if it were... uh, Basically in the same terms, I think, as traveling to other countries within the EU. Yeah, that's right. And that's basically the deal that Parliament, if it were not so divided right now, would agree on. Um, But the hard Brexiteers, the European uh, research group, as they call themselves, refuse to let, you know, the the rest of the parliamentarians vote on a Norway or Norway plus type agreement, Mm -hmm. which would probably be the best for everybody involved, because the the left's argument is that uh, and. I think that it's true is that for all the things that the EU has done in terms of like kept, I don't know, Germany and France from going to war for the umpteenth time, you know, uh, for all the things that it is, uh, ultimately it makes socialism illegal, right? In many senses in in the UK. So if you kind of stepped halfway out, you stayed within the the, the common market, uh, you had uh, the relative free flow of people and goods, but you could then start nationalizing or cooperatizing uh, industry within Britain. That's what a socialist Labour Party would want to do, what Jeremy Corbyn would want to do. Now, what complicates things again is our other option is a second referendum. So this is very similar to the Rachel Maddow types of the world who thought that like if a good Mueller report came out that Trump you know, would be found, uh, I don't know what, uh, like collecting a million dollar check from Vladimir Putin in order to, uh, you know, subvert the American election that, uh, you know, he would be thrown out of office and impeached and they could just have Clinton as president. Well, or the resistance types who think that 2020 will be a second referendum and they don't have to do anything except reiterate that Trump is bad for the vote to go a different way the next time without changing any of the underlying social forces that led to Trump in the first place. Something like Beto O'Rourke, who is just Obama without the charisma like they would be very happy to have him back i I think what jamie just said is actually the most important point zooming out from all the the wonkiness and the details of this remain lost because all they could offer were um a series of, of horribles about what would happen upon exit and they weren't wrong but that's not how you get people to to come out to the polls and support something in the same way that never trumpism is insufficient um you know, I, I think that um, w- whatever happens with Brexit, the question to me, as, as someone who has less of a stake in it, is is why this kind of nihilistic or rejectionist moment has has happened in a lot of Western democracies, ours and Britain's especially, where, um, you know, we, we have a system that's essentially failed to 
deliver what it's promised or even can't organize itself enough to make promises. Um, in America, we have an incredible amount of political stagnation. And in 2016, we saw people go to either end in some ways, Bernie and Trump's popularity, not to draw a false equivalency between them, but it was in part a rejection of a status quo that was stagnant, that failed to give people meaning, that failed to give people a sense of purchase in, in what's happening to them. Yeah, 100%. I, I think you talked about this a lot in History is a Weapon as well, the most recent one. Like when you destroy the old institutions and the web of obligations that people had under feudalism and systems of making meaning like the church and patriarchy, like even though a lot of those things were oppressive, um, you're left with very little to bond people to one another or to create meaning as a community when every every human relationship is mediated solely by the market yeah and what um what replaced that for a period of time the the 30 glorious years in europe um was a sort of uh keynesian like a national social democracy the nation state the nation state but bourgeois the na liberalism no but in an important way i think a lot of this nostalgia especially among working class voters was having very strong and militant unions having a very strong nationalized healthcare system having the dole having all sorts of ways in which the government intervened now they're in a position where now working class people and everybody is in a position where austerity austerity has eaten that away so much right that it's almost like a nihilistic vision that's mm. left over they want to go back to that but that seems impossible so it's almost like this ahistorical conflation then of uh, a time an earlier time in capitalism when they had a social democratic welfare state and a strong workers movement um, they're conflating that with those older, more conservative institutions that they also associate with, you know, with with good with good stuff, basically yeah, it, like yeah. land, uh, country, family, religion, all that crap. They want to they want to move backwards and you know make the, Britain great again. The left, yeah, the left um, is relatively weak, but we're presenting a vision where we want to move forwards in time but um but what does forward mean what's the vision that we have presented well uh i mean corbin's platform seems to be like a more cooperative economy um I, which to me it just sounds more like keynesian economics um so i don't know if it's totally forward but I, i'm not super familiar with corbin but i i want to say that um one thing that mason brought up in that interview that i thought was pretty interesting is that part of this alienation from the country that people are feeling is the fact that they're uh, uh, they they bring in so many Eastern European workers um, in order to hyper exploit them uh, for you know wage labor like uh, building jobs and uh, agricultural jobs and they're not allowed to vote they're sort of shut out of civil society so um, although he he rejects the the uh, very racialized xenophobic arguments that are key to Brexit. He agrees with the sentiment that the way um, the way the border regime is being used does not, you know, it's not internationalist. It doesn't strengthen British society or uh, or a solidarity between borders. It just ex it just brings in people solely to exploit them and to keep them out of society. Yeah. Oh, and I think uh, someone else made the point as well uh, that it out the borders of the EU itself are not 
very accepting of migrants from outside of from the outside EU. Oh, certainly, yeah. Right? Well, just to touch like on we what we have migrant camps all over the place of people who can't get in. And and to go back to what Andy said, yeah, we're talking about a Novara Media clip that we all watched, which was Paul Mason on Tisky Sour. People should definitely check it out. Paul Mason's kind of a post-Marxist. He has a really good analysis. But Andy points to a really fascinating part of it, which is he says Paul Mason says that it's a capitalist dream to have an hyper-exploited three million migrants within the UK who do not have a political voice, right? And so again, we can- Yeah, because they can't vote, right? They can't vote, they're not, part, they're not British citizens, but they're there working and, and, and doing the jobs. And on the left Brexit side, you know, there was an argument made that Britain was more susceptible to, this didn't actually pan out, I think statistically, but to have wages undercut and labor undermined because they didn't have the kinds of strong unions and sectoral bargaining that other parts of Europe did, that their professions, that plumbers were more exposed to this. Yeah, I think that there's a good time actually to take uh, and listen to some actual uh, British people. Ash Sarkar, who uh, couldn't make it on the show, uh, her disembodied voice will still be on these because she went out uh, and uh, did some interviews with some folks in the in uh, Britain. And I think it's very interesting to hear what people on the ground are saying and the kind of you know, conflicted but but real emotions they have about what Brexit means to them and, and what uh, Britain means. Yeah, so this clip uh, is courtesy of Novara Media. This is uh, Ash Sakhar, um interviewing uh, some old uh, racist white working class people in Britain. And what, and what they're doing to Jeremy Corbyn, I think is bad, really bad. I met him, right? I met him, and he's a lovely man. I think they should, they should be done for what they're doing. They should be stopped. But you don't see a difference in his view on immigration and your view on immigration? Oh, I don't know his, I don't know his point on that. <clears throat> he believes in accepting more refugees, especially from Syria. No, I, don't, I don't agree with that. You can't agree with everything they say. Every, everything a politician comes out with, you can't agree with everything. No, I don't agree with that. But he's good for this country, and he... Hey, don't forget us, it's for us. All right, so... So there you go. So that right there, I think, points to this... Um points past this very facile view, right, that Brexit is only about racism and it's only about xenophobia. This one woman is saying on the one hand that, you know, she wants the foreigners out, she wants the migrants out, they're competing for our jobs, yeah, take our she services. Yeah, that, uh, like, before, before the clip picks up, too, she's being interviewed about why she voted to leave, and she says, you know, we need the immigrants out, they're taking our jobs, uh, it's, I don't know if she's one of the people who's like, nothing against them, but, you know, uh, we, I can't get my medication. Right, right, we need right. to take care of the people who were born here first. Yeah, and then completely contradictorily, when um, Ash comes back and says, well, he wants more migrants, she doesn't even know about that position. She probably just read, she said she met him and she read the manifesto, you know, for the, for the many, not the few, right? And for her, it seems like Jeremy Corbyn bringing a, like this social democratic program in is more important to her than his particular feeling that like migrants deserve respect and that, you know, we should be able to have, a, you know, a humane immigration policy. Yeah, well, I think it kind of speaks to the fact that people haven't really been given a left alternative or a meaningful left alternative until very, very recently. Right? And I also think it goes to show that like economic populism like Corbyn is important, right? But like... 
out of power or in power, you need to make sure as a left that you connect the reason why migrants' rights are important with the reasons why that woman wants more money for the National Health Service, right? Why she wants more money in the community, better jobs, this, that, and the other thing. So it's not that she's right to be xenophobic. It's only that the left hasn't made the argument that you don't have to be xenophobic and you can still have like a government anti-neoliberal anti-globalization stance exactly so but then there's also the group of people out there who um i think it's a huge part of uh the british and of course the american population that says fuck all politicians uh so this next sound clip i think is how a lot of uh folks out there in the united states and the uk feel at this moment yeah i would say that the first woman if you want to map it into u.s terms might represent that small slice of uh, white working class voters who might be uh, persuaded to swing from a right populist like Trump to a left populist populist like Bernie if they're presented with the choice like, okay, there are a lot of fucked up problems. You could solve it by like scapegoating this nebulous bad group of people or we could solve it by, uh, you know, pumping up the welfare state. And like plenty of people are still going to choose the racist option. Like, don't get me wrong. Right. I don't want to downplay the influence of racism, especially in people's conscious motivations for voting this way. But um, some people, uh, who knows? They, they might be able to come back, I think, more so in England than here. But then the second clip represents, I think, a much uh, larger pool of people who I probably care about a whole lot more. And that is the people who are... Uh, working class but maybe not white and have been completely disenfranchised by the system by both uh obviously the racist right but also this uh kind of neoliberal diversity capitalism that also does very little for them so let's check it out it's a common thing that we see on tv there has been another big change since brexit you also had jeremy corbyn defy a lot of people's expectations. How do you guys feel about Jeremy Corbyn? People say that young people love him. Jeremy Corbyn can suck my dick. (laughs) It's as simple as that. I hate the Labour Party because they've done fuck all. They used to be about the people and now they're not. They've done nothing for us. And like I said about uni fees, if he's actually, you know, Mr Big Man, he needs to do something about it instead of just saying, oh, well, I don't want there to be uni fees. Do something about it. I want the funding to go to the NHS. Where's that gone? So he says that if he comes into power, one of the first things he'd do is get rid of tuition fees. Yeah, Yeah, but people can say that and then, you know, so they can get to that higher level and then they'll just reenact on the words, if you know what I mean. They can say that, they can say that they're going to, you know, do this and do that, but they're not going to, they're not going to do this and they're not going to do that. They can say it to get people on side, but as soon as he's got that power, it's not going to happen. So there you have it, folks. That uh, probably represents a lot of folks uh, politically right now, as all over the world you see, you know, um, the liberal democratic system in crisis, whether it's in the UK being unable to agree on a Brexit or whether it's in the United States where this hateful, horrific figure of Donald Trump has all the reins of power in the U.S. People feel disenfranchised and uh, they, for good reason, don't trust politicians. Well, you know, in the U.S., one of the reasons why some people look at the fact that we don't have a parliamentary system, that we don't have 
ideologically disciplined and focused parties and say that's why part part of the reason why there's declining trust in politicians, right? Like congressmen are basically the least trusted and among the most reviled public figures of anyone surveyed. I think they're even lower than lawyers, which I personally find <laughs> hard to believe. Um, but I think you know, uh, e- a even, recent poll said that Genghis Khan is yeah, uh, has higher favorability than Genghis Congress. Khan does have higher favorability, <laughs> and why he, not? He the man the can ride a horse. He did. But um, you know, I, I think in in England you do have a party that once it comes to power actually can usually will try to enact the things it claimed it would. It doesn't have this hang up of a divided government, this idea of checks and balances that that cause us to stagnate. And yet there's uh, no trust. And I mean, maybe these are younger people like, quote unquote, low information voters. But the fact is, there has been um, a decline of trust in elites throughout the Western world. And, you know, on on the one hand, I think we should all think that's good because the technocrats um, have have failed us repeatedly over time. But on the other hand, it it creates this um, susceptibility to false narratives, this um, I think increasing tendency to lean on identity, mm-hmm. the leader who you feel you can project your identity onto, the one that that gives you a sense of, of purpose, purchase, belonging in, in your national project. I, I, I think that we're, we're seeing this moment where there's an incredible amount of discontent, some of it nihilistic, some of it we can't trust politicians at all. And, you know, it, it, it's not like our kind of more pat leftist narratives would tell us. It's not just because of economic deprivation. You know, we can say that labor's share of income is is declining and wages have stagnated, but, you know, there's this huge lag between the financial crisis and all the economic impact that people felt and what's happening now in the last couple of years, the rise of the far right throughout the Western world and the loss of faith in, in narratives that the elites are putting forth and their turn towards populism their turn towards putting forth things like like Boris Johnson did that they can't even enact. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think I would like to understand better is is how we've reached this moment. Is it the the procedural frailties of our system of government that we could just fix with some tweaks? Is it something unique to the information age that we live in? Or is this, you know, more to the expectations point, the fact that, like, globalized neoliberalism um, isn't providing the rise in incomes that people thought they were entitled to? Well, if you want to put it in class terms, um, I don't have the stats on the UK, but I'm going to guess they're similar. The single biggest predictor of whether or not someone votes in the US is how much money they have, how much money they make. I think there apart from age, yeah, and that's poor true. Poor people... Uh, by and large, do not vote. And that is a group that skews uh, non-white and female. And uh, why should they, by the way? Because when they do, their preferences are never reflected in the legislative outcomes we right, have. Right. And like people who want to blame the electorate can say, oh, well, if people don't vote, then the Democrats can't do anything to help them. But like, even if it were true that the Democrats were going to do something to help them, uh, that would still be the Democrats' job to convince people to vote for them. And the the best way to convince people is with past action. So you really can't blame people. Like, it it reminds me kind of of the the guys the New York Times interviewed in that Milwaukee barbershop who did not vote in the election. And then, you know, Donald Trump became president. And they're like, 
we are not convinced that this is going to make a material impact on our lives. And you can say, oh, but you know, the Medicaid expansion and like the, 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 the access to Medicare for all thing you like option access tax credit point or whatever, <laughs> like, guess what? They're still going to be poor. Like no yeah. amount of programs designed to maybe help the poor a little bit that the Democrats may or may not pass uh, in the in the time in the in the most recent decade or whatever that like that that has not changed the fact that people are poor in this country and it, it doesn't change the uh, structural inequalities that exist. Yeah, I mean, I think that this gets into, again, the larger picture here is because we kind of gave Corbyn and Corbynism short shrift in that, uh, that history of the Brexit thing. Um, Bernie Sanders very much uh, on this side of the pond as well, and even AMLO and others, um, represent um, something new coming out of this sort of I don't know, disintegration of the of the vital center, right? That you've seen all across the uh, the Western world. So you know, Corbin, those those two girls, right? I think one was a, a WOC, and I'm not sure of the other, but they were young. They were they were teens or in their early twenties, right? Like they they are right to feel that way. And they're uh, not. They're certainly not they're, wrong. They're not wrong. That way. <laughs> and and I would say certainly with Hillary Clinton, the guys in that Milwaukee uh, barber shop were not wrong to feel that way. I no, guess they our, were absolutely right. And our questions and, and for people come in like, oh, oh, but you're you're a person of color. How can you how can you not care about this uh, this racist coming in? Why why would you not vote for the anti-racist given those options and that as there's mass incarceration yeah, and that, people it, getting shot in their community and no jobs like to it does with. not yeah. speak to their material realities from uh, day to day 100 percent. I, I think we we are part of a segment of the population that pays a lot of attention to politics though and we even see what these material promises are whereas maybe other people don't jamie i really want to go back to what you were saying before like what what is it that you think would connect with people? One thing you pointed at was that you really need to be able to run on a past record. We have a couple problems with that in America. One, our left, our left party uh, doesn't have much of a past record to point to. Two, in their sort of defensive way uh, of trying to keep the New Deal alive, they've never branded anything they provided as a government program, which is how you could get things like keep your government hands off my, my Medicare. I mean, is it really that we need to improve messaging of what we already have? Do we need a better message? Or is there something about the moment that we're in now where it is harder to message anything? It is harder to, to credibly promise anything because there's skepticism about the genuineness of politicians, skepticism about the capacity of a state to enact the things that it claims to do. I mean, Jamie, what do you, what do you think like might work? Because that is our goal, that is our project. The million dollar question, well, as you know, I am an electoral skeptic, and this is one of the reasons, right? Uh, it's it's hard to change. At, at this late date, it's hard to rally political support for these electoral solutions to problems that uh, elected officials have not been able to solve in any real way ever, and certainly not in any substantial way since the New Deal or maybe the Great Society. 
So great, great society came to bite everybody in it's, the ass. It's going to be tricky. But even in strong welfare states, right, we're seeing people who are more aligned with us come up against these these strong. And by the way, I don't. I'm not criticizing you. I don't have a counter argument. But I think us hashing through this is is a way part of the important project of getting past just our diagnosis of the moment and figuring out what our what DSA or what the groups that we participate in should be doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there is something to be said for outsider figures like, oh, Bernie's not even a Democrat. Uh, he's been bashing away at these issues for decades. He's yeah. like a million years old. And, and Corbin, too. There are these like yeah. dinosaurs been, where the clock stopped on them, you know. They've been the right trying way. and trying and trying. So even if they don't have a record of achievements, they at least have a record of Consistency. Really, of, of consistency and attempts that the democratic or the neoliberal establishment worldwide has not even uh, tried to do any of these things in quite a long time. And, so and, we have that. Uh, and it's a less elite centric way of doing things, right? Because the, the left neoliberal claim is that, look, I know you don't like the things that we're doing, but trust us, it'll produce the growth that will enable us to provide the welfare state that you in the end want, which is very different from the project that that Bernie or, or Corbyn are doing. Yeah. And they've been saying that same thing since the neoliberal turn in the 70s. I mean, really, since before that. But uh, they actually started executing the plan for neoliberalism then. And they they've been saying it ever since. And they're saying it now. They're still saying it. And it's insane to me that anybody still believes them that that's going to work. So. We keep saying the word neoliberal, and I think that this is ultimately what it comes down to, is that whether it was the Brexit vote on the referendum or whether it was the protest vote for Trump, right, this consensus that we've lived our entire lives through, right, which says globalization, free trade, you know, uh, making the government smaller but more efficient is falling apart. I hate to say it, folks, but Trump is a repudiation of that, right? We don't like it. It's going the wrong way. But so is Brexit, you know? Yeah, so well, that was the tragedy of Brexit as well, <laughs> right? We have all this populist energy floating around and they're critical of some of the right things, but their answer to it is going in wildly the wrong direction. And this is exactly what our task is on the left because a, it's not enough to just have a Bernie Sanders and a Jeremy Corbyn out there saying the right things authentically for the last 40 years, right? We need to be like proposing and organizing and out there to show that there is an actual way in which those young teenage girls, you know, can actually get involved in things and have faith in not just a human being, but a project, a collective project that everybody is a part of. I'm not saying that if Bernie Sanders becomes president, we're going to have social democracy or democratic socialism same thing with jeremy corbyn right but if it is the case that with brexit and with trump that neoliberal center is dead and or dying right that is our opportunity to jump in right now i think corbyn despite everything has done a pretty good job of threading the needle right and saying like trying to keep the different sectors of his part of his party together in order to basically take power for the left and hopefully devolve power at a certain point yeah. in time at, at the same time, like, I don't think we should put all of our eggs in one basket with these really inspiring electoral campaigns. Um, I feel the pull of them myself uh, to have mainstream politicians, famous politicians talking about class politics in a way that nobody has in 
a long, long ass time. But in order to even get any of those reforms passed, uh, it's going to take not just electing the right people, but having a mass, radical, united social movement across across nations. Um, we need to unite the diverse working class. It's not just something that's going to happen because everyone's going to wake up and realize they have these academically defined common interests. You know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And uh, like, here's another thing, and I guess this is maybe a segue into talking about economic crisis. Um, I'm not convinced that even these kinds of sweeping reforms that uh, Bernie, Corbyn, and other left populists around the world are talking about, I'm not convinced that those are going to be enough in the long term to fix capitalism, to stabilize an inherently unstable and contradictory system, or you know, even let's say they are, um, people still are gonna be alienated People are still going to be anxious and depressed because they have no control over their own lives. So even when we talk about, you know, yes, everyone deserves a humane life. But one of the differences between leftists and liberals is that we think people deserve more than a humane life. We think people deserve to be in charge, fully in charge right. of their own lives. And no amount, no, no best case scenario uh, social democratic progressive international is going to be able to fully achieve that for them. And let's again get back down into what's happening at this moment in time. Um, I would I texted uh, the two of you guys, Jamie and Andy, the other day because uh, it, there seems to be you know some economic indicators pointing to a new recession. Oh yeah, let's talk about a that. lot of what has been propping Trump up is that the kind of leftover of the huge bailout, the trillions yeah. of dollars that went through quantitative easing and just direct you know, pumping of money uh, into the economy that came with the bailouts and all that. A lot of that was starting to wear off, uh, you know, and then Trump, Trump gets elected. And like somebody who's really tired, if you just pump them with a bunch of sugar, they're going to get a nice rush. Trump did those uh, huge tax cuts for the wealthy in the United States, which, of course, you know, does prime, quote unquote, the economy. Um, if you consider that being like stock buybacks for shareholders and but uh, it seems to have also helped the metrics we care about, like employment. Sure. Uh, yeah. Slightly on wages. This, it's a bad record, but better than it had been in the past. This is what Trump has been able to lay claim to. Right. However, right. If you look at the labor participation rate, which is how many people are actually working, we're still four or five points below the, the 2001 high. high yes. Think. Right. So. If and when there is a recession and we are in a period of time where this has like been one of the longest periods of quote unquote growth in history. And we can assume that between now and 18 months from now that uh, the economy must go into that bust cycle because it's been in boom for a really, really long time. And as that sugar rush of those massive tax cuts for the corporations and for the wealthy, those waves of concentration and combination of capital cease to do the wonderful things they've been doing for their GDP, right? Uh, wage growth even, right, has now gone dipped down uh, below uh, the rate of inflation. 
I think that all of us right now, we, we need to, to look at the aspirations that Jamie was talking about, right? And that you were talking about the sense that like things are going to get better and understand that there's going to be another recession. It might not be the great crisis it was, but Trump is in power. And with that neoliberal center here and in Britain, in France and elsewhere falling apart, these, this is the time when unlike 2007, 2008, we need to be on the fucking ground and ready. Right. Whether that's the DSA, whatever left is left of the ISO, you know, independent free radicals all over the place. Right. Like as people's aspirations go up and we saw this in the Great Depression. Right. As they think things should get better coming out of a crisis. That is the time. Right. When the when the left broadly is able to make the greatest gains because people say, oh, well, you know, we we got out of the recession, but why isn't my life any better? Why don't I have control over things? You know, why is my boss, you know, forcing me to work 50, 60 hours a week? We have to, again, just be prepared intellectually and organizationally to confront the next crisis when it comes, because all signs point to it coming sooner rather than later. Yeah, and here's where the institutions of counterpower or dual power, whatever you want to call it, come in once again. Because if we have these institutions up and running, if we have uh, mutual aid centers and other ways of organizing and helping each other survive, um, including like in the present for people for whom the crisis has already begun, right? Because we have talked a lot about the migrant crisis at the border on this show like it has started for people in puerto rico it has started for people in everywhere there's been a natural disaster in the recent past like if we have those things up and running if we have independent working class institutions whether that's unions whether that's soup kitchens whatever um we're going to be a lot better equipped for the fight ahead when uh, another crisis gives us an opening of some kind. And I also am afraid if the left diverts all of its energy, 100% of its energy, into electoral politics, then it's, it's not going to work when, when the crisis does come along. Um, everyone who criticizes the actions of the bourgeois state is somehow going to become like a class traitor or a wrecker. So what we've been talking about with Brexit, right, is a kind of knee-jerk popular opinion to just do a kind of protest vote, right? We've seen not just in the U.S. and the U.K., but also we're seeing in France, uh, we're seeing in Hungary, we're seeing in Turkey and elsewhere. Um, Inchoate uh, discontent. Yes, exactly, right? And also these institutions that were set up for what I would argue was a different era Mm -hmm. being unable to actually deal with the real day-to-day -day problems of the American people, right? This is something, these, this is the, these are the waters in which we are swimming, and this is the terrain on which we are fighting. So we need to take, you know, look at how deadlocked things are. Look at how uh, Parliament can pass a, a decent Brexit bill, right? Look at how the... The, the, the U.S. Senate can't the, pass legislation, <laughs> yeah, period. Exactly, right? That even if all of our hopes come true in 2020 and Bernie wins without a Democratic Senate, you know, even forgetting the Joe Mansions of the world, um, basically nothing. He'll be able to oh, do nothing. And, and so while the we Supreme Court too, yeah, right. And which so, is stuck for generations. And so while we think of all those things, right? Remember that your duty on the left is not merely to pull that lever every two to four to six years or whatever it is, right? Is that if these institutions are broken, which they clearly are, it is our time now to start organizing and proposing counter institutions, right? Perhaps. 
a Bernie or a Corbyn, um, you know, uh, power situation will be part of that, but it cannot be all of that. It cannot be the whole of that. It is our job on the left to do good stuff for <laughs> stuff and socialism and whatever. Well said. Thanks. <laughs> left are the good people that do good things. Wow, Andy has put his sunglasses on. <laughs> He's probably gotten stoned during the time that we were talking, talking, talking over the amount of time we were supposed to be talking. Uh, do you have any uh, any final thoughts, Nero? I mean, I guess I'm more electorally inclined than you guys are because my That's focus fine. is always on a nearer term um, and less about the vision of the society we want to create. And I think it's just like a, a personality trait that I have. But personality yeah, I think disorder, yeah. It, it is. Uh, I'm disordered <laughs> in so many ways. But I... You know, I, I think you're right that, um, you know, even this most hopeful electoral moment, you know, for the first time in my life that we're seeing uh, Democratic politicians say things that I actually agree with and care about, um, you know, they, they didn't uh, spawn out of nothingness. They came out of conditions that left organizing helped create. And I think in terms of proposing both, you know, policies, electoral solutions, but also trying to... Um, create visions of the sort of a, a, autonomy and collaboration sense of community that you want to have um, are all part of the push forward through, especially in America, a system that isn't designed to deal with the world that moves this fast. And since we just saw sunglasses like fall from out of oh, frame to wrap directly onto Andy's eyes and a spliff just pop into his mouth, uh, yeah, deal, deal with it mode. He's basically a, the gif of the deal with it dog <laughs> yeah. right now. Do you have anything to he's add to this, Andy, it, Andy? Or, or did we just uh, wonk your wonk your brain? I, what do you got? I, I agree with a lot of your conclusions. I, I don't totally understand the Brexit stuff not being there. I, I think Paul Mason's account seems overly optimistic to me. And I think, uh, you know, it would be great to see a Corbyn Corbyn in power and then Sanders in power, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem that we're in. Well, you um, know, so we have it's, to be thinking. Uh, one, we have to be thinking reduction. differently. I what, think of thing. that in terms of harm reduction, and yeah. of all the reformist candidates, I think they are the most sincere in their reformism. Mm -hmm. I think people kind of overstate the matter when they act like uh, Bernie Sanders is going to like pass a law to get rid of capitalism. Yeah, no, that's that's our that's what we do here. That's what we do here. Deal with it is uh, we, t you know, a lot of folks want to end with a Bernie victory. Right. But we don't want to even end there. That's only that's the beginning. The that's the beginning for us. Well, one thing that connects, I think, the say the optimism of Paul Mason's take and also the ability of a lot of you know, nihilistic voters or even non-voters to say, like, this doesn't matter, I don't care, I'm not going to vote for it, is that functional institutions is part of the air we breathe. We don't recognize this being a project of the state. Um, you know, America is coasting on having a lot of strong institutions and bureaucracies that limits the the harm and damage that someone is venal and incompetent and corrupt as Trump and his, and his cabal can do. Um, and, you know, in, in the same way that um, Brexit might make... Uh, trade negotiations less abstract and more immediately felt some of the basic functioning of government falling away could either you know precipitate crisis you know to kind of make us finally collapse as a <laughs> as the last presidential constitutional democracy that's fine that's or fine. um you know be an opportunity to i know you guys aren't statists to the same extent that i am but uh to, to reaffirm the need for collective projects what is a state? Jamie, well, call us out. Call to arms. I, okay. Um, something that popped into... Yes. The, 
Let's let's vape. Let's vape it up. <laughs> hot box this whole studio. So sorry, Sam. When Sam comes in tomorrow. He's gonna get so so high. Sorry, um, no. It might be a chill show actually. Anyway, so uh, one thing I was thinking about is the people who don't think that politics are gonna do anything for them. Uh, one advantage to these uh, independent and external and bottom-up institutions is that they can have an immediate impact on people's lives and they can get them engaged in their community and in activities that are political without being uh, in the bourgeois electoral sphere. Like disaster relief. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like it, like people want to talk shit on anarchists, but like I'm, we don't know what's going to work. I'm not convinced that anyone does much of anything. Uh, worst case scenario, anarchists help people who need food and shelter and to get their bikes fixed or whatever. Uh, worst case scenario, you help some people. Best case scenario, you help some people in a way that also builds our ability to successfully challenge capital for, for, for everything, for the things that we need. Um, but I think if you want to take a longer view on it, I do get a little more optimistic because whether we get the accelerationist timeline that it <laughs> seems like we're getting or whether we get the somewhat uh, stabilizing uh, return to Keynesianism timeline, uh, whether MMT turns out to be pure snake oil that's going to <laughs> crash the economy or whether it turns out to be like this great uh, panacea <laughs> to pay for a welfare state without having to tax people. Yeah. Um, our job as radical leftists is the same. Yes. We still need to change the relations of production. We Dead still ass. need to democratize the economy. We still need to empower regular working people all over the world to take control over, over their world, over their own circumstances. And, you know, we can fight from a position of working class desperation. We've seen it before in history. We can fight from a position of relative working class strength. I think they each have pros and cons to recommend them. I would personally prefer the, the, the timeline that results in the least amount of human suffering <laughs> in the long term. I, uh, I, I may have been accused of not preferring that, but, you know, don't get it twisted. But, uh, you know... Whatever happens, we 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 have to do our job, and we're not going to give up. Thank you. And Jamie, can you uh, close us out by saying saying just as that young uh, British teen did, Jeremy Corbyn can suck my dick. Jeremy Corbyn can suck my dick. Deal with it. But you mean in a good way. <laughs> yeah. A nice. You'd dick. like him to suck your dick. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is welcome to suck my dick. At which point. He will join our polycule that we are building as just another project in furtherance of the goal of fully automated gay space luxury communism. And Unfortunately, he's anti-Semitic, so it's not gonna probably not gonna happen. Oh man! Well, okay. It's like a hate suck. I uh, fine. That's I'll take it. And <laughs> don't you even talk to me, Neural about your partially automated, heteroflexible, <laughs> uh, materially comfortable, high atmosphere socialism. Yeah, get GTFO with that shit. It's not turning